Welcome to My Favourite Beatles Song, the podcast where we celebrate the music of the Beatles with a distinguished guest. I'm Tim Tucker and talking with me today is Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Griffith University and author of A Women's History of the Beatles. Welcome, Christine. Thanks, Tim. If you had to rate yourself in terms of your fandom of the Beatles on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your fandom? Is it okay if I give you the spinal tap answer? I yes. think of <laughs> I think of Nigel Tufnell for those maybe who don't know the film, one of the members of this, you know, faux rock band, Spinal Tap, showing how his guitar amplifier goes up to eleven. And I think in terms of longevity at least, eleven for me. Um, but pretty high up there in any case, I would say nine or ten <laughs> right yeah and as somebody who's written about the Beatles that that takes a certain kind of commitment and fandom I'm I'm sure and we'll talk about your your book shortly my second question which is ha have you ever met either uh, a Beatle or an entourage of the Beatles or seen Paul or Ringo or George or John live at any point well I have seen Paul twice before and I actually hmm. am lucky enough to have a ticket to see him again here in Brisbane on November 1st. So I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't met Paula Ringo. My sister has met both of them on a few occasions. So she's quite lucky in that respect. I hope she doesn't and... hold that over you in any <laughs> annoying <laughs> no, way. No, no, <laughs> not at all. Though I have a kind of sweet story to go with the first concert I went to with my sister. And this was in New York at Madison Square Garden in 2005. And my sister had gone to see Paul the night before, and then we went together the next night. And she said, okay, look, there's this part in the show where Paul is playing just on his acoustic guitar. And I think this is the time that in between those songs that we shout something out to Paul and see what happens. And of course, I was totally down with this moment of Beatlemania for the two of us. And so sure enough, and I think it was after he played I'll Follow the Sun. I think that was it. So after that song, my sister and I counted off and shouted from our seats, which were close enough that clearly he could have heard us if if we shouted loud enough. And we we shouted, we really love you, Paul. And from the stage comes a reply. Love you too, guys. So I guess I could say I've had a little communicative moment with Paul, but I haven't actually met him. Um, <laughs> that counts. <laughs> I have met and interviewed Klaus Foreman when I was living in Hamburg from 2006 to 2007. I was working on my PhD, which was actually about mod culture. And I was coming at that project in a way to think about the Xs as kind of the German cousins to the very earliest mods in the UK. So I just emailed him. I found his email and emailed Klaus and asked him if he'd be willing to be interviewed by me, you know, this PhD student from the States. And he agreed. And that was an amazing experience. That that probably is sort of my peak experience of meeting somebody from within the Beatles inner circle. But I also did meet Ostrid 
during that year, and I actually had met her briefly in 2002 when I volunteered to help out for the first ever Beatles convention in Germany, which was held in Berlin. And I happened to be staying with relatives that summer and so signed on for that and got to meet Astrid, met her again when I was living in Hamburg. Um, and then I was also lucky enough to meet Pauline Sutcliffe. I was involved with an opening event for an art exhibit at Guildhall in East Hampton, New York. And my friend Kevin Tier, who's an artist, had an exhibit called Upon This Rock. And a lot of the paintings were in response to Beatles songs. And he knew Pauline and she lived in the area. And I had just gotten my first post-PhD um, post at the University of New Hampshire. My book had just come, my first book had just come out. So Kevin asked if I would be the moderator of basically interviewing Kevin and Pauline and then running the Q&A afterwards. So that was quite lovely. And Pauline and I stayed in touch for a little while after that as well. That's great. Yeah, lots of important people in the Beatles story there that you've um, connected with. Um, and in mm. fact, Klaus Foreman obviously was the designer of the cover of the album, the song that we're about to talk about, Graced. So that's interesting uh, connection there. And can I ask you about your book, A Women's History of the Beatles? I guess I might trace back the origins of this project to that summer in 2002, where I was volunteering for the Beatles Festival in Germany. And meeting Astrid Kirscher was just something I couldn't believe happened. I mean, I'm half German. I speak German. <laughs> the German part of the Beatles story fascinated me early on growing up in a bicultural, bilingual home. And I loved her part of the Beatles story, the fact that she was a woman who really influenced them early on in terms of style and persona. And that maybe there that really was the seed of the project but then it didn't really get going for real as a research project until probably about 2016 and I did a trip to the UK where I started interviewing people I was in London doing archival research as well at the British Library I went up to Liverpool and that's really when it got going and it was important to me, not just uh, as a scholar or as a woman, but as a fan of the Beatles as well, who felt there was this gap and there wasn't the kind of holistic representation focusing on this part of the story, the fans and also all the women in the story. And by now, obviously, there are three generations, maybe even four of fans. So... I wanted to really try to cover as much of that as I could. And certainly it's not the women's history of the Beatles. It's a women's history of the Beatles. So it it can't cover everything, but I did want to give it a good try to, to see what I could include and what kind of representation I could give to these women who are musicians, who are various kinds of artists, who are other scholars of the Beatles as well. So I really wanted to foreground 
those voices and experiences. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. And I highly recommend the book to all our listeners. It's really interesting to see that angle, which is not covered enough. Oh, thank you. And I do hope there are more, you know, in the pipeline. I hope there are more women who'll be writing about the Beatles. And I know there's a book that came out about the Beatles and fashion authored by a Canadian author, I believe, a woman. And I just hope there are many more books that come out in the near future. song you've chosen is she said she said was recorded at abbey road on june the 21st 1966 during the final session for the album revolver in fact it was literally the last day and they had to get it in the can quickly as a 14th track to finish off the album it was released on revolver august the 5th 1966 in the uk and august the 8th 1966 in the u.s Obviously, in both countries, it went to number one, was very successful. Um, Those are the facts. Please tell us what drew you to to name this as your favourite Beatles song. Well, it's interesting because, of course, most people who know something about the song now associate it right away with Peter Fonda and one of John Lennon's first acid trips and being in Los Angeles, hanging out with the birds and you know, there was this day that they spent together and the origin of the song is is from there. But I came to the song as not even an eight-year-old. I think I was a few months away from turning eight years old. And my sister brought Revolver Home, the U.S. capital release is what I grew up with. And she brought it into our house maybe in early 1979. And she said, okay, everybody says this is the album. This is the Beatles album to hear. We had some other albums by that point, but we didn't have all of them. And she she kept hearing from friends that this was a very special Beatles album. So we started playing it. And as soon as that opening guitar riff came on, that starts, she said, she said, I was just captivated. And the whole structure of the song, the whole sound of it, just drew me in. I also think there must have been something, even if I didn't, if I couldn't articulate it at the time, but I can think about it now, this fact that the the relationship between the man and the woman in the song, what you're hearing in the lyrics, to me sounded so unusual, so different, If I'm thinking about the Beatles songs I would have heard before, she said, she said, I thought, wow, it isn't just a love song. It isn't, you know, they're having this kind of unusual conversation and to the point where um, John, the narrator in the song, is questioning his existence. You know, what's going on? How strange. But there was something magical about it, I think, because it was beyond my reach. I didn't know the history of the song at that point. I didn't know the context, the historical context. And so it was purely 
the driving sound, the drumming sounded fantastic, but it was the guitar line, I think the most, and the the strangeness of the lyrics that really drew me in upon first listen or the first several listens, I would say. I was going to say, because as you referred to, if listeners don't know, it was um, started by uh, a conversation he'd had on acid with um, Peter Fonda. Well, in fact, I've, I've heard two different versions of this. The one that Peter Fonda mm-hmm. tells is that this was in uh, August of 1965 when they were they'd taken some time off during an American tour and there are lots of people around like the birds and Joan Byers and, you know, people like that. And I think they'd taken acid for the second time, John and George Mm -hmm. and Ringo. And um, according to Peter Fonda, George was actually going through a bit of a bad time. Um, And it was Peter Fonda trying to kind of placate him and say, it's okay. I know what it's like to be dead. It's fine. But John heard this in passing and thought it was some weirdo. Well, he knew it was Peter Fonda, but he thought this guy was, you know, disturbing, didn't he? He thought it was, why, why is he going around saying this? (laughs) And it isn't Mm -hmm. just that, that element of the song does remain, doesn't it? That sort of disturbing nature, as you said, the conversation is a strange one. And then going into his childhood as well. Yeah, exactly. But I was thinking about the fact that in 1966, when Revolver first came out, nobody would have had, unless you had some insider knowledge, you know, you knew the Beatles and you had heard some sort of story, nobody listening in the general public would have any idea about the LSD, about hanging out with the birds, Peter Fonda telling the story about how he almost died as a child. And so all of that stuff comes out later. And I'm fascinated by that, too. I like the idea of the Beatles taking some time out of their hectic tour schedule and wanting to, you know, expand their minds and hang out with their groovy friends in Los Angeles, these other musicians that they're, they know but haven't probably spent a lot of time with. So I like all of that. I think for me, what's fascinating when I reflect upon the sound of the song is that probably all the music I've ever come to love has that kind of guitar sound to it, you know? And I think the music, the song, the sound of it, I think has really maintained in a strange sort of way this timeless quality about it, even though it's so, it is the early strains of psychedelia. It is so much of that moment. And yet I'm thinking about the fact that when I was a teenager in the mid to late 80s, for a while I was really into the goth scene in Chicago. And even though I was a goth, I still would proclaim my love of the Beatles. I didn't care if some of my friends thought that was strange, didn't like it don't care. I knew that, you know, Robert Smith and Susie were big Beatles fans and, you know, Dear Prudence had come out by then. And I I felt that listening to Revolver or maybe the White Album really went well with that post-punk experience. And then later in the 90s with Britpop as well, it just, you know, she said, she said, especially, I felt really mapped on to what was going on in those different time periods. It didn't seem strange or dated or anything. I mean, the Beatles music has aged incredibly well. I don't think any of it sounds dated the way 
some music from the 60s could sound. It's very distinctive guitar sound all across uh, certain songs on Revolver, isn't mm-hmm. it? If you compare it to the guitar sound on Rubber Soul, it's quite, it's it's mm-hmm. beefier. It's got that starting to get that distortion. But yeah. it, it's, it's not like any other distorted guitar, is it? It's not like a Hendrix type guitar. It's a very beatly sound. George has a lot to do with that, doesn't he? Don't you think, George Harrison? Oh, absolutely. And there is, you're right, It's it has a bit of something odd about it, but it's also still a very pure sound coming through. It's interesting that George sort of steps forward here. Paul has said it was very much John in his book many years from now, but he does say that he wasn't involved as much with it. It's it's almost a collaboration between John and George rather than John and Paul, this song. Well, I've certainly heard the different versions of that story circulating. And I think at one time, Paul McCartney did say that he doesn't remember playing on it and yet more recently I've read other accounts saying well he played on on some of the early takes and then left and a lot of people seem to think that the the bass line sounds so McCartney-ish that it probably is him and he just because of the circumstances of him leaving early maybe he just doesn't remember that that's actually the take that he played on. It's now viewed that he might have left in disagreement was a possible suggestion of a piano on the song. Mm. And it feels like reading between the lines, and we've got to be careful with this, it feels like he might have suggested that and John resisted. And that's when the disagreement started. So it's got much more of a sort of, if you want to say rock attitude, isn't it? It's very, it's fizzing with energy considering it was at night. It started at 7 p.m. and took nine hours. <laughs> so I think John wanted to keep that energy and not go into that experimental way that Paul might go with it. That's a good theory. And and I agree. I mean, I think that's something that makes the quality of the song so special is it is this outright rocker on the album it really has this dynamic energy that the other songs don't quite have I mean you mentioned Andrew Bird can sing and that's probably my other uh, favorite on the album and probably Mm. in my top 10 favorite Beatles songs as well I just really love that mid-60s you know like late well Even, you know, I really love Help as an album, but that's such a different kind of album. But that mid-period, all the songs like Day Tripper, Andrew Bird Can Sing, Dr. Robert, Rain, you know, that that is my favorite Beatles space to be in, I would say. (laughs) It's a great space. Yeah. And it's interesting because we heard in the Get Back documentary on Disney Plus that uh, John and Paul are talking. They don't realize they're being recorded. And John says, now, the only regret about the past numbers is when, because I've been so frightened, I've allowed you to take it somewhere I didn't want. The only regret about the past numbers is when, because I've been so frightened, I've allowed you to take it somewhere I didn't want. Yeah. And then that my only chance was to let George take over or interest George in the yeah. If you give me all suggestions, let me reject them and pinch me on a light. This way we'll write it. Same goes for the original. You know, as somebody who has interviewed a lot of people about 
their memories from a long time ago. And even, you know, um, three or four years, you can forget things or you remember them differently. Um, so, you know, I feel like I want to allow Paul McCartney some space, yes. <laughs> whether he, you know, maybe it's true that he didn't have a lot to do with that song at all. And that's fine. Um, but it's interesting to speculate, isn't it? This idea of trying to sonically capture something that is so difficult to describe to other people, you know, how how do you get across the experience of taking a hallucinogenic drug, a very powerful one, and John and Ringo, George, Paul, they're trying to to serve that up somehow. And I know we take psychedelic rock as a subgenre for granted now, but they're just feeling their way through what that might mean. Recently, I read the music scholar Walter Everett, who's written some really great books about the Beatles music. And he reminded me that the repetition of the guitar line to sound like the melody that John is singing you know, there's that repetition. I know what it's like to be dead. Na, 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 na. Yeah, that it's supposed to imitate or try to conjure up that notion of visual trails is is what Everett is suggesting, that idea that, you know, a lot of the, the visuals that people experience on LSD have this kind of strobing quality or like trails of visuals and so musically he's interpreting that um, bit of the song as trying to replicate that in some way I said you put all those things in your head things that make me feel that I'm right and you're making me feel like I've never been born People didn't have any kind of real vocabulary to talk about those experiences. And so there's John trying his best to, to capture some of the essence of that. Um, and how do you do that just with your stringed instruments and drums? You know, there are no special effects really that are going on as you would have later with Sgt. Pepper or, or even with Tomorrow Never Knows. It's a very band performance, isn't it? A band live band performance although we know from the revolver bot set we've got the early demo he did on acoustic have you heard that version where he's he's sort of figuring the song out and it's it has some of that loping quality but it's played on his acoustic guitar and he's come to the she said part and some of the lyrics are forming According to the account from Jeff Emmerich in his book, it was literally on the next to last night of recording that they only just realised that they were a track short. So they didn't come in expecting to record, she said. She said he had this demo, but and John had to step forward and say, well, I've got something. <laughs> For a song that wasn't 
like you say, lots of overdubs and lots of, you know, studio trickery. It was just getting the arrangement right. But mm-hmm. they kept mm-hmm. the energy up. And you can hear in that bit of banter on that um, on the box set version of Revolver, you can hear John saying, come on, come on, last track, last track. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> last, track, last track, last track, last track. Keep going, keep going. You're doing fine. See, I'll sing the words. Well, that's no good. One, two, three, four. interesting time wise isn't it because the the beat is in 4/4 but it does change key and then it goes into a very different kind of time feel she said you don't understand what i said i said no 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 you're wrong when i was a boy everything was right everything was right i said again that's meant to sort of replicate in some way the the feeling of distorted time, supposedly when people are tripping. So I, I cannot speak from experience, but from reading lots of anecdotes and people telling me about it, that seems to be a, a really integral part of that experience. So I'm not surprised that they were thinking, well, let's kind of play with, you know, Ringo, can you? do something a little bit unusual but gosh I mean I was thinking about how much I love Ringo's drumming on this and I've always been a fan of Rain as well and he's I think I've read in several places Ringo says that's one of his favorite drumming moments is on Rain but hats off to him for what he does and she said she said because it is incredible. It's it seems like he's really drawing it from somewhere very intuitive, you know. And and I know probably that's true with most drumming in most situations. If you're a really great drummer like Ringo is, but um, that it seems especially inspired. kind of quite moving isn't it actually him going back to his boyhood at this point where he's talking about death in the first instance whatever level he's talking about he's talking about death to his childhood it's quite a quite a yank isn't it it's quite a move but it's managed so smoothly by the drumming particularly I think oh absolutely and it does herald obviously things to come with strawberry fields forever which doesn't you know it doesn't speak of death in the same way that she said she said does very overtly but it's that sort of hazy dreamlike feeling um that comes up again later on and that sort of childhood nostalgia meshed in throughout the song yeah both songs. that's right it does presage that doesn't it it feels like it's the start of this new direction that they're about to go in in terms of thematically and also the sound but nothing ever quite gets on. There's nothing on Sergeant Pepper with quite the energy of she said, she said, or Andrew Birkin sing, is there? Maybe uh, Good Morning, but I don't know. It feels a little bit more polished, doesn't it? Whereas here it's quite raw. And I, knowing that it was the last track and they had to get it done, but they were really the good. They were intent on getting it right. Is 
it makes sense, doesn't it? It's still got a real a uh, feel that, that they haven't captured again, I imagine. Um, yeah, a real urgency, it seems mm, like, an intensity yeah. um, with that pure rock sound. And you're right, I don't, when I think of the songs on Sgt. Pepper that maybe come close to that, I think maybe getting better, maybe a little bit, or a lovely Rita in a way. I mean, those those are quite energetic, upbeat tracks, but um, it's not it's not that same sort of groovy sound that you get, yeah. groovy rock sound that you get. And she said, she said they had to get it done at this date because they were going to about to go on tour two days or three days later. So there was no changing the the finish date. I, it makes me wonder why they never they never played it live. Although interestingly, there is a snippet of, of it. I don't think it's on the documentary, but there is a snippet of them playing it together in the mm. get back sessions. Oh wow. But they had a go at a lot of songs, didn't they, in that in those sessions? Sure. So yeah. did make me wonder if they ever did play live again, they might consider it. It feels to me like it would be a great song to hear live, isn't it? It's a shame mm. that none of them have done it. I know, I know. I mean, there are obviously covers and there are a lot of live covers of the song that you can find on YouTube and so on. But to be honest with you, and maybe because it is my favorite Beatles song and I love it so much, I'm not really a fan of the covers of this one. The way I am, maybe, for instance, I mentioned before Susie and the Banshees cover of Dear Prudence. I think it's fantastic. I can listen to that all day long. I love it as much as I love the original, but I wouldn't say that about all Beatles covers. And no, I think just the original of this one is just so fantastic. I don't want to hear the yeah. cover versions of it there's something that can't be captured isn't there in that performance thing even by them and uh yeah it feels like that there's a lot of revolvers like that it captures something that is unreplicable agreed a lot of people mention this as their favorite song and in um in a 1967 TV show, Leonard Bernstein did a little analysis of that 3444 bit and said, it's a remarkable song. He said, these are real inventions. And at that time, he was trying to promote pop music as having you know, value in the musical landscape, which I don't think it had from, from somebody who, who was in the classical field. In Mojo 2006, Robin Hitchcock, do you know Robin Hitchcock, a musician? Yeah. He said, I first heard this when I was 13. It came bursting out of the speaker, really triumphant. Lennon had a real peak to his voice. He could sing all those soaring harmonies, get right up there with David Crosby, or could really cut through. It could puncture things like Dylan's voice. And this is a very good example of that. It's the ultimate 1966 song for me. It's strange, a bit morbid, like the brain dripped in batter, but it's all within the membrane of the three-minute pop song. Well... I'm happy to hear that Robin Hitchcock loves that song too. I'm not surprised, um, but that's great to hear. Yeah, what he's saying about the way it just sort of comes through the speakers when you first hear it, 
there is something so commanding about the song. It, like I said, it just captured me from the get-go. And it does have such a 1966 sound. It's so much of the moment. Mm. But again, uh, I feel like it travels really well through time. I think it has the same excitement to it now when you hear it. Somebody hearing a Beatles song for the very first time, you know, one of my students came to me and said, oh, I know you're really into the Beatles, but I don't really know a lot of their songs. I would have them listen to this first, honestly. So, you know, there there are others, of course, that I would pack onto that playlist, but um, this would definitely be one of the first that I would introduce them to. But it's interesting because I still have students who will say to me when we are doing a unit on popular music and youth culture and things like that, and they'll say, well, the Beatles were a pop band, not a rock band. What? <laughs> that is, I would not, you know, I know they've been described that way, but I always think of the Beatles as really inventing rock music for real, that they were the first um, not rock and roll band like you would have earlier on, but rock, you know, as a genre. I feel the Beatles are number one. Yes, the Rolling Stones are in there, but, uh, and they usually take the title as, you know, the ultimate rock band. But I would always argue that the Beatles started it all and it just shows that their repertoire and their musicianship there's such a wide spectrum to what they were able to do what they were able to accomplish but i think it's still under the umbrella of rock honestly yeah I was thinking about the position of She Said, She Said, which would have been the last song on side A, right? If we're thinking about the old albums, the LPs. And the side starts off with really focusing on the earthly things and material things with Taxman. And then I was just playing a bit of this association game in my mind with what each of the songs represent leading up to She Said, She Said. So we go from the annoyance of, you know, earthly material matters with Taxman, and then the state of loneliness in the world or the experiences of loneliness with Eleanor Rigby. I'm only sleeping, the idea of escape, right, from all these things. And then uh, love you too, the mysterious nature of love, which segs into here, there, and everywhere, the beauty of romantic relationships, followed by the joy of community with Yellow Submarine. And then the way that the lyrics come through, she said, she said, especially when you don't know the nature of, of where the song came from, you know, it speaks to the agonies and ecstasies of the mind, really. It's this idea of, you know, existentialism, thinking about yourself in the world and the worries you might have about that, right? Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, yeah, how just on that side of Revolver, you go from the earthly and material to the otherworldly and transcendental. And so that was yeah. the main thought I had. But then the other was, 
in a way, how interesting, and I know I'm not the first person to observe this, but just as I was listening to it again today, how how strange and lovely and wonderful that she said, she said comes after Yellow Submarine. <laughs> because you wouldn't think of that track listing, you know, that it's interesting why they decided to have that after Yellow Submarine, it makes sense why it's last on the side. But, you know, I would have thought one of the other songs might be a better fit before she said she said. But as I was thinking of these associations with the the lyrics and the content of those songs, I thought, no, you know, that makes mm -hmm. sense. There is that joy of togetherness and feeling right with the world in Yellow Submarine. And then it moves into this questioning sort of angsty moment of, well, is everything right with the world? I don't know. And, and it's interesting because think... it's a children's song in uh, at least partly, isn't it? Yeah. It's the when I was a boy part kind of juxtaposes True. nicely with Yellow Submarine, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So I just wanted to share that with you. Oh, I that's thought great. That was interesting to revisit since I hadn't done that sort of immersive listening with Revolver for a little while. <laughs> you know, it's beautifully put the way you describe that. And it it made, it made um, a point that I think is really important about Revolver, which is why we all love it. It's very universal, isn't it? It does cover, like you say, earthly, spiritual, death, childhood, old age, loneliness, love, yeah. separation. I mean, it's amazing for a two-sided album. 14 songs that you can cover all that ground. It's a truly universal album, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you look at the flip side, you know, there's more of that. There are the joys of being together with people. Good day, sunshine, you know, just enjoying nature and and um, the beauty around you. I mean, there's it just continues on, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, it's it is such a fascinating album that it covers all those those emotions, all those experiences um, that we all, you know, go through. You've mentioned lots of songs today. And I always ask, because obviously <laughs> it's, it's when when I ask people about their favourite Beatles song, it's always like, well, I can't pick a favourite, but I always force them to. <laughs> but if you had to pick three or four more, I know you've mentioned mm. some more, but what would you put in your group of top, um, you know, three or four more Beatles songs that you would consider your favourites? Well, it's funny because when I realised my favourite Beatles songs um I realized they were quote-unquote a lot of John songs which right. is strange for me because I think growing up I always looked to Paul McCartney a bit more as my Beatle in a sense I wouldn't say I mean I think for me especially now John and Paul are on par in terms of favorite Beatles if you like but um I, it was interesting when I realized for instance she said, she said, of course, but then also Rain, and I would say Strawberry Fields Forever, sort of my top three Lennon-led Beatles songs. But I want to give some love and respect also to Paul, George, and Ringo. So I think I would have to mention for Paul, a longtime favorite of mine are Things We Said Today, but I also love Paperback Writer because, again, it's in that that Beatles bubble that I love. George, again, the jingle jangle guitar of this period comes through in If I Needed Someone. So that's the one I'll name for him today. 
And actually with Ringo, though I know it was written by Lennon and McCartney, I really love I Want to Be Your Man. I just think that is my favorite Ringo vocals, you know, or Ringo-led song. I think it's so much fun and just fantastic. And I love their version a whole lot more than the Rolling Stones version, I have to say. And it probably is because, again, it's such a rocking song and Ringo is incredible on that one. Yeah. Yeah, drumming and singing so well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's good. You covered all of them there. That's perfect. How would listeners be able to find out more about you and your books or follow you on social? Any any particular places I can put in the show notes? I'm really quite active still on what was once Twitter, now X. So that's at Feldman Barrett. And so people can find me there. And then I'm on LinkedIn as well. That's my other sort of professional presence and social media and then my books are you know findable they're available anywhere people would look so amazon you know most online booksellers and of course bloomsbury which published a women's history of the beatles so you can always find me and my books there i also had a co-edited collection that just came out recently also with bloomsbury that's about the history of record stores around the world so that's called the life death and afterlife of the record store a global history so some of your listeners might be interested in that one as well well thank you so much for spending time with me today to talk about the Beatles and in particular she said she said it was great oh thanks it was my pleasure it was really fun thanks Tim thanks for listening to my favorite Beatles song if you like the podcast please consider giving it a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform this helps me to reach new listeners you can follow the podcast on x.com instagram and facebook Look for the links in the show notes. Thanks to Joe Kane for the fantastic music and Mark Cunningham for the logo design. I'll see you next time. Hold up. 